The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinny Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week's episode features an audio edition of our original series, Judgment with Ashley Banfield, where we'll take a closer look at a landmark case that led to one of the first anti-stalking laws, the 1989 murder of sitcom star Rebecca Schaefer and the subsequent trial of her stalker, John Bardo. Featuring interviews with Schaefer's talent agent, Sue Cameron, retired LAPD detective, David Escato, and forensic psychiatrist, Park Dietz, this is Judgment of the Hollywood Stalker. This is the Court TV Podcast. I can fantasize about violence, but then it's kind of different to actually do violence. I guess there's this thing called moment of truth. I'm not going to do something as well. I'm a fan of yours, you know. This. It was a crime that caught Hollywood off guard, sending shockwaves throughout the country. On July 18, 1989, an up-and-coming actress was shot point-blank at the front door of her apartment building. Her killer was captured the next day, and his trial was almost as frightening as the crime itself, revealing the many ways the murderer stalked his young victim and all the people who knew he was doing it. A Hollywood murder will always capture the imagination of Americans. It was hard to become famous back in the late 80s and early 90s. Rebecca Schaefer was on her way. She was on this show with Pam Dauber called My Sister Sam. This was a top 20 show. It was even in a great time slot on CBS and it was doing well. So she was becoming a household name. It's like a skyrocket for your young career, isn't it? It's gone great so far. I really like working on the show. Yeah. We lose Rebecca Schaefer because a deranged fan was so upset that she didn't love him the way he loved her. It sounds corny, but she was all sunshine and lightness. I was Rebecca's agent during My Sister Sam. She had no desperation of wanting to become a star. She didn't have that liquid dripping from her mouth that I recognized from wannabes. She was exactly who she was. And, and happy with it. And whatever happened, happened. Her parents were extremely nervous. And they were saying, we're very concerned about this. There are strange men here. I said to them, oh, you don't have to worry about Rebecca. She's the smartest, most grounded young actress I've ever known. She'll be fine. And it haunts me every single day. In July of 1989, I was a uh, detective at Wilshire Division. We had our radios on, and, and we could hear uh, a call come out of uh, shots fired, victim down. It came from a good portion of the city, maybe a half block south of Beverly Boulevard. They get out there and call us and say, she's uh, expired. Uh, it looks like it's Rebecca Schaefer. 
So my partner and I start getting phone calls from people saying, hey, you need to look at this guy, Robert Bardo. He's been to the studios trying to get in to see her. So right away, we had someone to look at. Later on that evening or early morning, we got a call from Tucson, Arizona. A detective there said that they have uh, Robert Bardo in custody. Now, police said the suspect tried to kill himself this morning on Interstate 10. The 19-year-old has been booked into the Pima County Jail, but may not stay for long. L.A. police want Bardo extradited to Southern California to face first-degree murder charges. He was running in and out of traffic, wanted to get hit by a car, said he uh, had just killed a movie actress in uh, Los Angeles. I was at my home, and I got a call from one of the producers of the show. There was no hello, nothing. It was just, like, Rebecca's dead. What? What? Rebecca's dead. That can't be. No, someone shot her point blank. And the room started to spin. And, and I, I went, oh my God, her parents. The phone rings, I answered it, and it's uh, Rebecca's mother. And she's in tears and she says, please tell me, you, you have to tell me, is, is my daughter dead? I need to know. But I just said, I have bad news, your, your daughter has been murdered. That chops me up a little bit. All right, People versus Robert John Bardo, BA 001043. The defendant is now present. Hollywood trials are always a circus when somebody is high profile, but this one was even bigger because we had an up and coming television star and it was just so tragic. For the record, I have not read the transcript of the preliminary hearing in this matter deliberately because it came here as a court trial. And I've also uh, not, since I found out it was uh, going, I have not read anything in the newspaper about it, nor have I watched anything on television. The trial was done without a jury. Everybody agreed to that and let the judge, Dina Fulgoni, decide the case. I think they felt that a jury really wasn't needed for this since he had already acknowledged he did it. My impression is that the young lady was killed at her house and that there will be evidence that perhaps the defendant found out where she lived through DMV records. That is the total knowledge I have of this case. By agreeing right. to trial by judge, the prosecution waived the possibility of the death penalty which would have been another whole trial and would have gone on interminably and would have been useless, really, because it became evident that he was mentally ill. How mentally ill was probably the only issue in the trial. Bardo had some real demons, but he had convinced himself that something was gonna happen and he was gonna be with Schaefer someday. And as he realized that wasn't gonna happen, in his mind, the only thing he could do was shoot her. But Bardo goes to her building in LA and he knocks on the door. She opens the door, so he's standing face to face with her, and there's a little bit of a conversation, and then he leaves. He decides, I'm gonna go back, and he goes back to her building, and he shoots her in the chest. All right, ready for trial then? Yes, Your Honor. All right, defense ready? Yes, Your Honor. All right, let's then proceed. Can I ask you if you recognize the item? The prosecutor in this case was none other than Marsha Clark, who would become famous later in the OJ trial. It was actually the first case that put her in the spotlight. 
my opinion is that it has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed a murder and that he did so by means of lying in wait. The strategies boiled down to this. The prosecution wanted to say that he waited and ambushed Rebecca Schaefer. That's called laying in wait, and that carries a harsher penalty. But the defense said he was too sick to do that. He simply just snapped. The evidence clearly establishes that Robert Bardo was mentally ill, uh, had this on and off again mental state where he went from complete hate to complete adoration. And it wasn't something that he had uh, intended to take Rebecca Schaefer by surprise. It did happen. There was that triggering device, and I believe that to be true. We had never really seen a trial of a stalker of a celebrity quite like this. But what they wanted to do, the defense team, was to show that you've got to have some compassion for this guy. And look, there's no denying what he did, but this is why he did it. Immediately after his arrest on July 19th, 1989, Robert Bardo admitted to killing actress Rebecca Schaefer. Her killer's trial in 1991 would focus on how he did it. The prosecution alleged that Bardo ambushed Schaefer by lying in wait, a form of murder that carries a harsher penalty. But the defense claimed he could not have killed her in that manner due to his history of mental illness. Did you have an occasion to conduct an evaluation on Mr. Robert Bardo, the individual seated to the far right of counsel? Yes, I did. I was hired by a defense attorney to examine Robert Bardo, and I had done a very large study for years of individuals who threatened and attacked public figures, both Hollywood celebrities and members of the United States Congress. As I told you yesterday, I'm Dr. Bates, and your attorney has had the court appoint me to evaluate you. If I'm called to testify, then anything I know can be brought out in court. I understand. Good. I examined Robert Bardo in the L.A. County Jail, and on the first day of the interview, it was quite evident that there was something profoundly wrong with him. Uh, what did that evaluation consist of, Doctor? Uh, in addition to examining Mr. Bardo uh, directly, I also had occasion to review a number of documents concerning him set of records from the school district that includes uh, many of the writings of Mr. Bardo from early in 1984, the records from the Palo Verde Hospital in Tucson, Arizona, what appears to be the complete file from the Tucson Psychiatric Institute where he was hospitalized in 1985. His teachers recognized that he had a higher than average IQ and had actually been a straight A student as far as he went in school. So it was not his intellectual capacity, but he was very emotionally impaired, and that had been thoroughly documented throughout his childhood and early adolescence. Uh, when you were employed with the Sunnyside School District, did you know him to be involved in threats of uh, violence towards other students? Yes. Mm -hmm. What do you recall about that? Well, when he was referred to me, uh, in mid-January of 1984. The concern was more uh, for his anger in the classroom and uh, maybe some hostility expressed toward himself. But there also were students in the classroom that would have a tendency to tease him. 
and he would become very angry and hostile toward them. Were there threats uh, ever expressed by Robert that he would uh, kill one of these students? Yes. Mm -hmm. The notations below, the people at the school did a good job of stopping me from killing myself. They made a mistake because they saved the devil. Now the devil must kill. Is that your notation? Yes. Those are direct quotations from Robert. Whether from those writings one could have rendered a diagnosis at the time is, is much harder to say, but they are consistent with the onset around 13 of a schizophrenic illness in which he felt himself deteriorating even then. He had been hospitalized twice at around ages 14 to 15 after very strange behavior, but his parents took him out uh, against medical advice. What's your relationship, uh, Ms. Bardo, to Robert Bardo? I'm a mother for Robert Bardo. Do you know the names of any of his friends? I don't know. Did Robert have any girlfriends, as far as you know? No. Nope. Did you ever obtain a medication from the doctors for Robert? Uh, I don't remember. He had a pattern of latching on to targets. One was this woman in New England who'd been in the press a lot for a, a pilgrimage she made to the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I think her name was Samantha Smith. Um, he had received a reply from her to one of his letters, of course, that led him to think there was a special relationship, just as has happened with countless other mentally disordered people who receive replies from celebrities. Did you become aware as to whether or not uh, Robert ever took a trip to see Samantha Smith? Yes, uh, we found out that they picked him up in Maine, in the hometown of Samantha Smith, and the only way they caught him was that he happened to ask the police for directions to go to her house. What we see as a common dynamic in stalkers is that they are driven by a sense of idealization. Oh, you're the best person in the world. If I could just have you, I could be happy. You know, you've got a perfect life. You know, I want to be part of that life. I am part of that life now, you know, in their own delusional thinking. Now, there were diversions. He was very interested in a singer named Tiffany. He was interested in a woman named Debbie Gibson. He made pilgrimages to find them, to stalk them uh, without success. But when he stumbled onto Rebecca Schaefer, it was transformative for him. She became his prime target from that time until he killed her. What do you see in his writings that leads you to believe that he thinks there is a, an ongoing present romantic relationship with Rebecca Schaefer? I don't think he believes that there is a reciprocated romantic relationship with Rebecca Schaefer. Okay. He hadn't yet impressed her sufficiently, uh, made her sufficiently aware of him. He wanted the first date. I was in Rebecca's uh, trailer before the show, and she was so excited. She had her first box of fan mail. And she showed me, she was writing long letters of advice to these people, and I said, Rebecca, you can't do that. They don't understand boundaries. You're the girl on TV, and now they're gonna think that you are 
a friend. I asked her to send me an autographed picture. And uh, I believe that year in October 1986, she sent me a postcard. She uh, had written Robert Dish. Your letter was the nicest and most real letter I ever received and should have been real. She would please take care that she would heart the heart symbol and she would be Bardo was just a late teenager when he decided that he was fascinated by Rebecca Schaefer. He had cut out pictures of her from magazines. He would watch everything that she was on. He would write love notes to her. He sent her letters. And he was fascinated by her, and he was obsessed with her. So to the best of your knowledge, had you ever seen Robert to be violent with anyone other than his brother? Yes. Uh... On occasion, we, uh, he wanted to put uh, cable television in his room and uh, put a jack. I told him it was okay, and my wife came in, and she was highly upset, and she told Robert, no, she didn't want it done. So it served him oh, to take it out, but Robert got highly upset and swung at her. Did he hit her? I believe he did. He hit her in the arm, I think, or something. There's some people that look at Robert Bardo as being a sick individual, very mentally ill. There may have been psychosis, you know, those kinds of problems. But at the same time, he also manifested personality disorder issues, which is what we've referred to as character flaws that are not illness per se, but what other people might consider to be bad. You can be sick and bad, and I believe that he was both. There were quite a number of songs wherein Mr. Bardo determined the lyrics to have some special significance and meaning to him, correct? Yes. And which gave him direction? Yes. He then spoke of the bands that he particularly liked, especially U2. He again talked about the song Exit and quoted the lyric, pistol weighing heavy, heart beating. He said he thought that's what would happen when he first met Rebecca Schaefer. Quote, it's like I love you, but if you're gonna be some arrogant kind of person, you're no good anyway, end quote. He was, for the most part, emotionless and had a flat emotional appearance. He didn't know where she lived, so he actually hired a private investigator to go through the DMV records to find out her home address. In May of 1987, Robert Bardo took a bus from his home in Tucson, Arizona, bound for Los Angeles, to find and meet the object of his obsession, actress Rebecca Schaefer. It would be the first of several trips that he'd make to L.A. between 1987 and 1989, and it would mark the start of a dark and fateful journey into madness that would end in a brutal killing. 
In the course and scope of your duty, sir, do you come into contact with what I'd like to refer to as stargazers, that is, uh, civilians who are interested in following the careers and the lives of the stars? Yes. Can you tell me, sir, if you know uh, whether or not an actress by the name of Rebecca Schaefer had been working at the Burbank Ranch Studios taping a show entitled My Sister Sam? Yes. Rebecca and I were on a break in her trailer. We got a call from the gate, the guard at the gate. And he said, there's a man out here who is just fighting and insisting on seeing Rebecca. He says he knows her and that she wants to see him. I looked at Rebecca and I said, there's someone here. And she went, no, I, I don't know who that is. And so I said to the guard, no, show him away. That was the first time Bardo showed up. Then a couple of weeks later, we got the call again. And we said, no, no, you can't come in. But he tried to climb over a gate. And so there was word on the set that a crazy man was really trying to find her. When those phone calls were coming in, did you personally have conversations with this man? Yes. And he proceeded to tell me how much he was in love with Rebecca and that my officers had thwarted his previous attempts to get on to see her, and he didn't understand why, because he just loves her. Uh, I was trying to find out if he had if ever had any uh, uh, psychiatric trouble or anything like that, negative on that. He responded to your question about whether he had psychiatric problems in the past yes. as, no, he did not right. have any. Right. I made my way back to, uh, to the Burbank airport, went back to Tucson, Arizona, flight back, I was thinking about it, I should have returned. I should be turned back to LA to begin an attempt to find her. And with that, I carried a sense of animosity towards the fact that you know, it was very deep, you know. And that's when I, I think it was the first time I was seriously thought that I could cause harm to her. What we see in stalkers that have a narcissistic um, component to their personality is the tendency to idealize and devalue. Idealization means to put somebody up on a pedestal, and devaluation means the person that's been put up on the pedestal now being you know, viewed as evil, immoral, um, having done something malevolent, potentially, to the stalker. So it's in those dramatic moments of shifting from love to hate, from idealization to devaluation, where we find, you know, it's not flowers I'm bringing anymore. It's guns and knives. Have you, for a long time, been interested in guns? Yes, I have. Hobby of yours? Yes, it is. At some point, did the defendant indicate to you that he was interested in guns as well? Yes, he did. And then at some point, did you agree between yourselves that you would purchase a gun for him in your name? That's correct. And why could he not gone, have gone and purchased the gun himself? I don't know. If, I don't think he was of the proper age at the time. And your brother put up the money for it? That's correct. Directing your attention, sir, to the date of June the 1st, 1989. On that date, did you receive a phone call from a person who later on that, that in, later on that day came in to see you at your agency? Yes, I did. And do you see that person in court today? I do. Could you please identify him? The gentleman with the white shirt seated at the defendant's table. And when he came into your office, sir, did he have a conversation with you in the course of explaining what it was he wanted you to do? Yes, he did. First of all, did he tell you who it was he wanted you to locate? Yes. Who was that? He said the person's name was Rebecca Schaefer. 
He didn't know where she lived. He didn't know anything about her personal life, but he wanted to find out. So he actually hired a private investigator to go through the DMV records to find out her home address. At some point, did you, in fact, receive a printout uh, that appeared to be a Department of Motor Vehicles printout concerning your request to locate Rebecca Schaefer? Yes, I did. They called the office up and said, your timing is perfect. I just got something in the mail that you'd be very interested in. It's the DMV thing. They said, Rebecca Michelle Schaefer, at the same time that Bardo was finding out information about Rebecca Schaefer, she starred in a film called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, and there was a sex scene. In retrospect, really wasn't that explicit, but it was enough to trigger something in Bardo that this isn't what he expected out of the woman he loved, and he was angry. When your son Robert left for Los Angeles on July 17th, was there anything unusual about the way he was behaving? Oh, and, uh, I don't know, really unusual. He just said, uh, goodbye, Dad, goodbye, Mom, and, and that's all. Then left for the bus. I had a gun and bullets and everything. had a bus driver. I'd taken the ground bus to Los Angeles. I'd ride in the morning July 8th. I mean, I, I could fantasize about violence, but then it's, it's kind of different to actually do violence. You know, I guess there's this thing called moment of truth. On July 18th, 1989, Robert Bardo arrived in Los Angeles as the last attempt to find Rebecca Schaefer. But on this trip, he came equipped with the address of her home and a Rossi 357 Magnum. I take the ground bus to Los Angeles. I arrived in the morning of July 8th. So I went to a I expected more of a glamorous place for her to live in, you know. It seemed very mundane or very down to earth. So I went around and went to the alley, loaded up the uh, 357 Magnum. And I just remember what my sister said about calling her. So I called her up, made a polite call, right? I said that I was completely mission on. She immediately jumped in and started saying, oh, well, don't do it. You know, just don't hurt her or anything, you know, because, you know, that's somebody else's found, you know. I wasn't sure if I could do it, you know. I could fantasize about violence, but then it's, it's kind of different to actually do violence, you know. I guess there's this thing called moment of truth. So was there anything alarming in his demeanor in his manner with you on that day uh, during that phone call? No. Did you tell him to go ahead and try and meet Rebecca? I don't recall saying that. Had you ever known Robert to be violent or aggressive in your presence? No. I have nothing further. Before leaving on that trip, he had made a number of cryptic and not so cryptic statements to family members and others. And a number of those statements could be put together to say he had the intent when he left to come to L.A. to kill Rebecca Schaefer. There's been some other things, you know, like, uh, I'm going to kill Rebecca Schaefer, imagine Rebecca Schaefer's going to kill you, you know. And this is stuff that I kept to myself, you know, except the letters I was going to give to my sisters, you know. My sister was preparing to take both the airport and give her the, the letter. I told her to lock me up on the airplane, What she did. Do you recognize that envelope? Yes. 
And is that your name on the front? Yes. And showing you the letter itself, starting with Dear Arlene. Is this the letter that you recognize having read on the plane? Yes. Here's the letter. I'm tired of that. He had already concluded in his mind that she had fallen from grace. He had had her up on a pedestal based upon the roles that she had um, taken in terms of my sister Sam. And now she had moved into a different role that he had seen her in, and that enraged him. Um, and he was very much seeing her in that black and white point of view, that she had gone from, you know, this angelic kind of person to somebody that was doing evil things. And I believe he went there that day to kill her. Did you have any kind of unusual experience when you were at Jay's Market on the morning of July 18th, 1989? Uh, yes, a man came up to me and uh, stopped me and uh, showed me a picture and asked me if I knew this girl, if I'd seen this girl in the neighborhood. Well, I rolled down the window a little bit, uh, you know, trying to find out what he wanted. And uh, he, then he said, I, I want to show you something. And he, he uh, produced a picture to show me. It was a woman with dark, long, curly hair and kind of a three-quarter view, like a publicity picture or something. I went up to the security door. It's just a glass door. There's an intercom in the corner. I said, shake So I rang the buzzer. And I look, I see him, and down the hallway. I'm through. When she came to the door, she opened the door. I said, I introduced myself. I'm Mario Barton. She said, I'm going to sign. I'm a fan of yours, you know. I'm a fan. I said, I'm going to sign. I couldn't understand it, you know. I was like, I saw that in the stair. I was like, she's right there in front of me, you know. I'm not even a shooter, you know. The girl was in the back, you know. I was still talking to her, you know. She was just a regular person, you know. And so after I leave, you know, she goes back inside, and I'm like, oh, I'm would you please tell us what Robert Bartle's mental state was for that period of time of an hour delay between 9 o'clock, having left Rebecca Schaefer's apartment on the first instance, and returning approximately one hour later? Well, I think what he was focusing on, that is what, what was in his consciousness, was to see her some more, talk to her some more, get another dose of the same thing he'd received an hour earlier when he left so elated. So I the door again. This time she came out again. And she's she coming down the steps. She's just mumbling. She sounded like a little kid. She sounded like a little brat or something. And I was wasting, wasting, wasting your time, you know, like, I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan, you know. It's from right now. Pulled the door from right This. fleeing through the bag containing the gun and letters into a dumpster. Well, actually, as I was going into the bedroom, I heard the scream. One very 
loud, long scream. The country watched as public defender Stephen Galindo argued that his client, Robert Bardo, was mentally ill and could not have premeditated the murder of Rebecca Schaefer. But the assistant district attorney was a rising star. Her name was Marsha Clark. Yes, that Marsha Clark. And in Bardo's case, she set out to prove that he not only pre-planned the crime, he also stalked Schaefer like prey and then killed her after lying in wait. Clark's strategy started with efforts to discredit the defense's key witness. Why? Why? She's screaming. She's just screaming. Why? Why? No. The fact that there was a rejection in the moment was on top of what had already happened in his perceptions. There was no other reason to go there with a firearm other than um, to kill her. He then, while fleeing, threw the bag containing the gun and letters into a dumpster. The bag and the things that had been in his hand were bloodied, and that he saw blood on his sleeve. He said, quote, I was amazed. It was human blood, Rebecca Schaefer's. She was a human being, end quote. In your opinion, doctor, when he, Robert Bardo, approached Rebecca Schaefer's door on the second incident, was his mental state as such that you would conclude his purpose was to take her by surprise somehow? I don't think so. The second time that he went, she came to the door, and what he described to me was that she had an annoyed look on her face. It was that look of annoyance, the experience of rejection, that led to his pulling the gun and shooting her. Well, then let me ask you this, doctor. Did you ask him, as he came out on the bus from Tucson, how he was planning to kill her? Did no. you ask him that? No, I didn't. Did you ask him what his thoughts were on the bus from Tucson? No. Did you ask him whether he planned to take her by surprise? No. At the time you interviewed him, you knew that that was the essence of what he was charged with, did you not? Uh, I knew about the lying in wait allegation. Then when you testified for us in conclusory terms concerning about what happened that morning, you were not in fact testifying from your personal knowledge, were you? That's right. In fact, you were testifying to what you'd read in reports and transcripts, and most importantly, the defendant told you. Isn't that correct? All of those, that's right. And out of all those sources, the only one that you interviewed personally, face-to-face, -face, was the defendant? Correct. I take it then that you did not ever speak to Dr. Mayer of Palo Verde Hospital? That's correct. Nor did you ever speak to Dr. Mall of Tucson Psychiatric Institute? That's right. Considering it now, doctor, as you think about it, do you not think that the fact the defendant may have lied as to critical aspects of the case is an extremely important indicator as to whether or not you should rely on statements that he made to you? I think it is. I was very unimpressed with the doctor's conclusions as being ill-based on very thin evidence. Um, his credentials were impressive, but his work was not. I guess that is my position. Well, sure. Of course, the district attorney has to take that position because otherwise then they would be agreeing with the defense and we wouldn't have a need for a continuation of the trial. Does that look like an intercom to you? Yes, it does. Had you ever been in Ms. Schaefer's apartment? Yes. Several times? Yes. Did the intercom work? No. So when someone buzzed at the front door to the building, 
in order to find out who was there, she would have to go to the door or look outside her door. Yes. So every time you buzzed, she would look out her door to see who was there and then come to the door only after a while. Yes, she would. Was your apartment anywhere near the apartment belonging to Rebecca Schaefer? Right next door. Okay. Did you share a common wall with her? We did. Our bedrooms backed up to each other. I heard her buzzer and then I realized it was Rebecca's because I heard her come out of her apartment. I started walking to the kitchen so that we were paralleling each other. At the point that I got to my door is when I heard this blast. So you were standing basically inside your hallway and you heard Rebecca's footsteps pass your door? Yes. Did you hear any voices before the blast? None. How long a period of time elapsed between the last footstep that you heard and the shot? Half a second, a second, very brief period mm -hmm. of time. And after the shot, uh, you heard Ms. Schaefer scream, is that correct? Yes. Did you hear any screaming before the shot? I did not. Okay. What happened next? What happened is I was on the phone to, nine, to uh, the 911 people and I heard, uh, well, actually, as I was going into the bedroom, I heard the scream, one very loud, long scream. And as I was on the phone, there were more screams. And I mentioned to the people on the phone, can't you hear her screaming in the background? He reached behind his back for the gun. It's kind of like the physical version of a Freudian slip. After five weeks of testimony, the defense and prosecution would make their closing arguments directly to Judge Dino Fulgoni. It was a bench trial with no jury. So the judge alone was tasked with not only rendering the verdict, but also the penalty. On October 29th, 1991, the country was watching and waiting to learn what would happen to Robert Bardo. Robert Bardo, it's clear, suffered from extreme vacillations of emotions, contradictory emotions, flipping between the two emotions simultaneously. This condition of Robert Bardo is what separates this case vis-a-vis -vis the lying and wait theory from all other cases. Dr. Dietz was clear and unwavering in his opinion that Robert Bardo did not form the intent to kill until that triggering device occurred. The triggering device being the irrational perceptions of Robert as he saw Rebecca Schaefer walking towards him on the second visit. Robert Bardo is not guilty of first-degree murder, is not guilty of having committed that murder while lying in wait, and is guilty only of second-degree murder because he had an intent to kill at a time when he did not premeditate and deliberate. So. I am not trying to put forth a position that I think this defendant was perfectly sane and perfectly normal. I am not. I am saying that there is something less severe than psychosis to explain this behavior. The thing about this ambivalence story, Your Honor, and the story of vacillation 
is that it finds no mention in any pre-offense statement by this defendant. And he made many pre-offense statements. The court has reviewed them. His letters to Rebecca Schaefer, the letter to Arlene. And that letter is the only truthful statement we have from this defendant about what he meant to do. Now, try as I might, Your Honor, I simply could not detect any ambivalence in that letter. For that one time, that one moment, Your Honor, the defendant spoke his own mind. And the words he spoke described a plan of cold and calculated murder. When the defendant, he was in the moment and he was reliving the crime, his body unconsciously did what really happened while his mouth spoke the contradictory words of the fabrication he was attempting to put over. I grabbed the door. He described fumbling with the bag held in front of his body and he verbalized drawing the gun out of the bag. But even as he was saying that, Your Honor, he reached behind his back for the gun, grabbed his gun from behind him and fired. It's kind of like the physical version of a Freudian slip. Putting it all together, he loaded the empty chamber, put the gun in his waistband, went to the door, rang the buzzer, stepped back and waited until Rebecca Schaefer came out onto the porch and fired. The evidence stands as conclusive proof that the defendant murdered Rebecca Schaefer in cold blood by means of lying in wait. Thank you, Ron. You have the incontrovertible fact that Rebecca Schaefer was killed by a bullet that went in at an extreme angle to the horizontal. You have a man who's been planning and premeditating to kill someone. He has already formed an intent to kill as a result of premeditation and deliberation. It's been thought out. He has decided to do it. He's bought a gun for the purpose. He's bought a bus ticket. He's taken the bus. He's come over there. Are we to believe this is not premeditated? The crime is at least a premeditated first-degree murder. The law is very unforgiving of mental illness, and still is. It's not a good defense. It's rarely successful. The circumstances, as testified by Ms. Marta, that very, very shortly after she heard the last step, there was a shot. Clearly, not enough time for any conversation to occur. It implies that somebody rang the bell for the purpose of luring her out of her apartment so that she could be killed. I find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, uh, both as premeditated and lying in wait. And I find the special circumstance of lying in wait in that he killed intentionally while lying in wait to be true. Let us uh, set a date for sentencing. Barda was severely schizophrenic. He's serving his time. He's probably not getting treatment. And in a way, that's the cruelest thing you can do to a mentally ill person. But there's a lot of them in there. This was a chilling sign to celebrities that you may not be safe. Somebody can find out where you live, where you work, where you go get your coffee, where you go to church, where you hang out. Rebecca Schaefer didn't wake up that day thinking this is the last day of my life. Rebecca Schaefer woke up that day and her life was cut short and she never saw it coming. Her parents really touched me. Although I only met them once at the trial, but they stayed with me. I hope the Schaefers are okay. I really try hard to forgive myself and let go of the guilt. You can't do that when a 20-year-old is just shot down in cold blood. You, you can't do it.
Rebecca Schaefer's murder resulted in stringent new stalking laws enacted around the country and eventually around the world. In California, then-Governor George Dumejian ordered the DMV to restrict the release of public information. As for Robert Bardo, he was serving a life sentence at Mule Creek State Prison when he was stabbed 11 times by a fellow prisoner. Bardo survived that attack. I'm Ashley Banfield. Thanks for watching. There you have it, another deep dive into one of many high-profile cases straight from the Court TV archives. If you want to watch the full California versus John Bardo trial, check the show notes for a link to our website where you can stream it for free. And to keep up with the biggest current true crime stories, be sure to tune into my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.